went, no, listening to British Birds, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I have a special guest joining me for a chat. She's a freelance writer and literary agent based in London. She also manages a list of crime, historical, young adult and children's authors. Her new book, End of Innocence, The Untold Stories Behind the Victims of Child Killer Robert Black was released on August 18th, 2022. Please welcome to the show, Zoe Apostolides. Hello. Hi there. How are you, Zoe? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's more than a pleasure. We are here to discuss your new book, as I mentioned there in the opening, and a little bit about your career, just so that we get some background on what you've been up to. But before we get there, we always like to break the ice on British murders with, I call it a philosophical question. It's nowhere that advanced. It's a question I got off Google. So I would like to ask you... <laughs> Would you rather, it's one of those, would you rather travel back in time to meet your ancestors or would you rather travel to the future to meet your descendants? Hmm, I think on balance, I would rather go back in time. Um, I think on the whole, we've got more to learn from the past. Uh, generally okay. speaking so yeah and uh and depending on the time zone it might be particularly interesting to see what sorts of things people are up to in like 1800s 1900s yeah i'd say probably go back in time is that how far you'd go back then sort of 19th century ish yeah i don't think there's uh i don't i wouldn't want to go back to like hang drawing quartering type times you know, <laughs> a, a bit medieval um bit too much blood and guts for me no but probably i mean like yeah i mean to go back in time I'd, I'd rather actually be in a time when we've got antibiotics that would probably be my preferred, <laughs> preferred yeah. time zone. otherwise everyone's dropping dead but yeah um back in time what do you think the language barrier would be if we went back to like 1450 1450 <laughs> just a random day do you think we'd be able to understand each other if we spoke to people from that time Absolutely not. But I think we'd get the gist of it pretty quickly. I mean, language evolves so fast, doesn't it? We'd, we'd yeah. pick up the slang we'd be in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's go on to, before your career, sort of your background, I suppose, where you grew up. You've got a very interesting surname. What's the origin of that? <laughs> yeah, my dad is um, Cypriot. So, yeah, but I mean, they're, they're British. We grew up in um, in Tooting in southwest London. So um, that's, that's pretty much where it all began. And um, yeah, still, I live now in southeast London near Peckham, so um, I haven't really moved too far. But um, yeah, I started in in journalism after university and uh, worked in newspapers, worked on magazines for a bit, and then went freelance a few years ago. So since then, I've just sort of been doing my own thing, really. Is that something you've always wanted to be, or like in school when they said Zoe, what do you want to be? <laughs> Journalist? I think I, yeah, I would have said this absolutely. Like, yeah, it's. Uh, it's the best sort of job. It's quite solitary a lot of the time, um, but I think that suits me quite well. I'm not really one for office chit chat and standing by the water cooler, so it does uh, it does suit me. And um, yeah, you kind of as a freelancer as well, it's brilliant because you you're able to to direct things the way you want to and pick up work as and when. And yeah, it's uh, writing is a, is a strange thing. I do a lot of ghost writing, 
So that's um, that's something you know that involves hours and hours of interviews with people, and then sort of turning that story into something that that they're happy with. So I guess that kind of relates back to your question about going back in time. That's something I feel like I do a lot of the time through through work. You know, do you find ghost writing rewarding, or do you Massively. find it? A, do you not find it? Because I think if I did it, I'd be like, oh, you're getting all the glory for my hard work. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think on the whole, like most people probably could write it themselves that's the thing most people could write their own books they either don't have the time or would rather sort of just chat through things with people a bit like we're doing now and then have it turned into a narrative but it is really interesting you meet people you never normally would and um people are really really honest with ghostwriters you know sometimes it's a bit like therapy (laughs) they tell you all sorts of things warts and all and because you're kind of you know like an outsider they um they tend to to be quite open, which as a really nosy person, I enjoy. Do you think people become more open because there's potential that their story could get published? Because it's that thing of people love to be in the limelight, I suppose. Not everyone, but a lot of people, I imagine, if they think that their story is going to go in a book or in a magazine or on a TV show, they might be forthcoming with some family secrets that they might not have told the other family members. I think sometimes they might be a bit more cagey if it's going to be published. But really, no, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. But it's um, yeah, it's something that definitely brings you up close and personal with lives that you just would never have encountered and bits of history that you've never really thought about. You sort of travel back in time all over the world and speak to speak to them, speak to their families. Um, you get a real picture of of this person. It's you know, you sort of sit inside their head for quite a while, try and enjoy. I understand you went to Oxford Uni, is that right? That's right. What did you study? English. English. <laughs> the most useless degree in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Does it is it split into language and literature at uni level, or is it just English? The degree is called language and literature, so you do a bit of okay. both. And probably yeah. the focus is more on literature, yeah. Is that your preferred side of it? <laughs> I'd say so, yeah, on the whole. Although the old English stuff, you know, it's full of like stories of monsters and battles and all that sort of thing it's quite similar to german so you yeah, know that bit of it's quite interesting talk about you know you spend a lot of time looking at old dictionaries and things like that but yeah on the whole it's the it's the the books the poems and plays that that's the kind of thing most people enjoy when they when they're studying it but what no one tells you of course is that it doesn't really equip you for anything else afterwards <laughs> <laughs> we should yeah. have known that yeah I mean, I, to be honest not in english i've got a degree also in in the classic for most lads my age in sports and it's about as useful as a chocolate fire guard. <laughs> I didn't even put it on my CV to get my job. Never mind. What sort of books were you into at school? Because I remember reading in English stuff like you'd read a lot of Shakespeare and you'd read a lot of classic poems and stuff. It was never really something I was into at the time as an adult more so. But what kind of books were you into? I'm assuming that reading was a hobby of yours. Apologies it if it's was, not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, from the beginning. I mean... I probably growing up, I was obsessed with ghost stories, with crime. I loved Agatha Christie. It's pretty much my first, you know, from the age of about nine, I was reading Agatha Christie. But then as I got older, you know, it's things like Dracula and Frankenstein, anything scary, anything with monsters and ghosts and vampires and all that sort of stuff. That was my favorite. But to be honest, it was quite a while until I realized that that was kind of okay to read. You know, at school, people sort of try to move you off that because it's, it's sort of seen as soft or or not proper literature, you know, but actually at uni, that's what I did my dissertation on is kind of vampire literature and things like that. So you get to realise actually it's okay. You can be 
you can be into that sort of stuff. Just the darker sides of life. Like I live really close to a Victorian cemetery here in Southeast London. And that was very deliberate. Like I've just, just, it's just something that's always fascinated me that kind of, <laughs> you know, the dark, the grim, <laughs> the, the like darker sides of life for sure. So one of your requirements on location, 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 it's not the, the big front and back garden. I'd like to live next to a cemetery, please. <laughs> yeah. Weird as it sounds. That's pretty cool. That's quite advanced reading, I would say, for a nine-year-old, Agatha Christie. I was into more Goosebumps and stuff like that. Oh, I love Goosebumps as well. Yeah, Goosebumps was the best. But Agatha Christie, I mean, the thing is, they're great for kids, actually. Like, they're they're quite short. They're not – I mean, often the deaths aren't super violent or explicit. They're not really that graphic. I think that if you you like a satisfying ending, which lots of kids especially really do – they're great stories. They've got clear beginning, middle and end. You know, they've got a bunch of characters who are pretty 2D. You don't dig into them too much. And it's, uh, yeah, so it's a good little starting block, I think. But obviously some of them were read to me rather than me reading yeah. all of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's more focused on the mystery, isn't it, than the gruesome, grisly details yeah, of yeah. the crime. Yeah. So you graduated in 2012. That's right. You've got your degree, fresh out the door. You've had your graduation ceremony. You've got your little hat on. I forget what it's called. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the the box hat with the little dangly thing on it. Yeah, you come out of uni and you think, right, first day of the rest of my life. What's your first action that you took? What was your plan at that point? Uh, I can't say I really had much one. I knew I needed to do something. <laughs> um, I started applying for internships. And uh, at that time, you sort of, you know, I knew I wanted to probably to write, to go into journalism. So I started looking around for something that I could do part or full time um, that was to do with writing. And the first thing I got to the horror of everyone around me was uh, like a uh, an editorial job at a magazine called Erotic Review, which was brilliant. But it was all about kind of, you know, uh, going to burlesque shows, reviewing books and films and anything in between to do with, uh, with the erotic. <laughs> so, uh, so that was my first kind of intro to it to journalism and I learned a lot there and then moved on to a magazine job and then to uh, a newspaper and that was that was kind of the the trajectory I guess it was a lot of it was you know different things within each of those jobs so editing sub-editing writing headlines that kind of thing yeah but yeah it's uh it takes a while to get there it's can be pretty thankless (laughs) the industry you know how hard is it to actually get your foot in the door? Because I've had another journalist on previously, Stephen Bates, and, and similar to yourself in that he's worked for several different sort of newspapers, online magazines, if you want to call it that. It seems as if once you've got that first role, you can start building a portfolio of work. Mm. So yeah. is, it, is it a case of the hardest part is actually getting your foot in the door and once you're in at someone, even if it's an erotic magazine? Yeah. It's a case of, look, I, I work within journalism. I've got experience now. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think like a lot of industries, it's just a, it's endless applications, it's endless interviews. And like this was 2012, you know, we weren't all using Zoom. So you'd be going along to all these interviews in person, sitting down, probably would never hear from most of them again. It's it definitely the toughest part was getting your foot in the door. But you do you spend a couple of years, you know, either at a, a B2B magazine, like a business type magazine, or you start as a reporter on like a local newspaper, if you can find one. I think that probably is the most difficult bit. And you've just come out of uni as well. So you're sort of, you know, you don't really know what's going on, do you? Well, I didn't. No. So um, yeah, definitely, once you're in, you can start to build it up from there. 
and chat to people as well. I think as finding a mentor, finding someone who's, you know, 10, 20 years older than you at, at, at your workplace and getting a sense from them of how they did it can be really useful. Joining communities, going to like meetup groups. That was something I did in London. It's really good. You know, young journalists and joining unions, all of that could be really good just to kind of build your confidence and you'll find tons of people in the same boat as you. Yeah, I, I think the mentor thing is a really good piece of advice. Do you prefer it now that most things are conducted over things such as Zoom or did you prefer the older school method of having to go and meet someone in person? Well, I'm a millennial, so <laughs> I prefer Zoom. I think it's just it's more efficient, isn't it? You log on, do what you need to do and, and then off you go. Yeah, on the whole, no, I'd, I'd much prefer to do things like that than face to face. I think a, a, a lot of meetings anyway are sort of useless. <laughs> You've got a time That's limit true. on them, sort of yeah. in and out, really, you know, whereas otherwise things can sort of drag and just be less time efficient, you know? Yeah. What sort of word count do you get given when you're writing in magazines or newspapers? It, obviously, a book's like what, 80 to 100,000 words, I think, roughly. Yeah. That's What's right. the average? word length of an article is that how it's given right give me x number of words or do you have to write I yeah don't understand how it works no it's always a word a word you'll always be given a word count to work with so ordinarily you know for the sort of reviews and things like that that I've done it's between 800 and 1500 words but it can be much shorter and sometimes you get much longer pieces as well obviously but it will be really clear from the start what what you need to do and and how many words they're expecting. And often, you know, if it's for a newspaper, depending on the amount of space they've got, they'll cut it down to fit the page anyway. So Hmm. it's pretty flexible, but they will always give you one. Do you ever get to the point where you'll submit something and they just say, absolutely not write that again? Yeah, yeah. Uh, It happened to me once right at the start. Yeah, but that's useful actually. It can you sort of you, you get to get to it, it, particularly if you're working for a new publication, that might happen. But on the whole, no, it, I, I don't think so. If you've read what they've written in the past and you know the general tone and style that they're looking for, it's it's pretty uncommon. And the editor might just red pen the whole thing anyway. So it your the essence of what you've written is there, but quite a few changes have been made. But yeah, I mean it's pretty uncommon to have the whole thing slashed. <laughs> I understand that you manage, as I mentioned in the intro, a series of authors in various genres that are kind of similar, so historical and crime and, well, young adult and children, which are a little bit dissimilar, I suppose. How did you get into the publishing side? Do you work for agencies to do that, or do you have people approach you saying, can you help me get my book published? No, I work for a literary agency called uh, Coombs Moylet McLean, so I work mostly on the editorial side of that, and the way that works is we have clients who are either first-time writers or very established writers and they'll send manuscripts in and my job is to 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 look at the manuscript read it a couple of times you know make suggestions and and discuss what they've written with with them before putting it into a proposal so that's the kind of that's the stage at which we say to publishers look this is what we've got this is how it fits into your list or who you're publishing at the moment this is who it appeals to the general market that sort of thing and then from there, we would, you know, negotiate with them on offers for that for that particular book. So my stuff is is mostly editorial. So, like okay. I said, yeah, it's just it's it's working with the with the writers at that draft stage, and then um, after that, it it sort of goes on to to sales and acquisitions and that sort of thing. So London Book Fair is a big week for us because we spend a lot of time with publishers and with literary scouts and that sort of thing, trying to 
get a sense of what they're looking for and whether we have anything on our list that matches that. Are you a quick reader? Um, I'm actually not. Really? <laughs> it takes me ages, yeah. Uh, reading, no, I'm, I'm not an especially quick reader because I don't skim. So sometimes yeah. things take, especially if it's if, like a non-fiction book would take me ages because it's sometimes, you know, the themes or concepts, ideas, I want to get my head around them. So sometimes it will take me a really long time to read just a chapter most of my friends are much quicker readers than me, actually. <laughs> so I was just wondering when people send in your manuscripts, I'm assuming those are for full novels. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you you read them a, a few times over, that would take me about six months. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it does take me six months or longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll read it three times in a week and let you know what we're going to do with it, mate. Yeah, yeah. It's not, I suppose the difference there is that sometimes, you know, you might have said, look, can you have a look at chapter five? Can you uh, work on this character or something like that? And so when they submit their update, they might have made changes just to that bit. And so you're just okay. looking at that bit. So it's not it's not always a case of reading the whole manuscript again, although mm-hmm. 90% of the time it is, but, you know. <laughs> okay. Let's play Desert Island books. You can take th- <laughs> three books to a desert island, what you're taking and why. Okay, I'm taking The Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford, which is very short big big plus um very funny and distracting and i'm taking dracula because i can't Classic. not and i'm taking what else probably and then there were none by agatha christie just because if i'm on a desert island there's nothing better to read than and then there were none let's discuss a day in the life a typical day i'm talking now so you wake up what time do you wake up normally normal weekday about 6.37. Okay, cool. Cup of coffee? Cup of coffee always, yeah. Cup of coffee. Straight away. Oof, that's something I've stopped doing. <laughs> Apparently, if you, if you wait a couple of hours, two, three hours, I know it's hard Yeah. to have that first caffeine hit, then you won't have the crash in the afternoon. Uh, that's a good piece of advice. I do tend to find like 4 or 5 p.m. knackering. So. Yeah, it's something to do with these levels of something in your brain. Anyway, I'm, I'm not a... A science kind of geese. I just saw a video on it and I thought, yeah, I'll try that. So you've had you've woke up, you've had your cup of coffee. What's what's first on the agenda typically? Well, I try before nine-ish, I tried to go for a little run. So I'd go for a little run around the local cemetery I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. And then I'll come back and I'll make a start. And it would depend whether I'm doing a an agency day that day. So I work for the agency, the literary agency, certain days of the week. And if not, then I'm usually on calls with people I'm ghostwriting for. So might have a couple of those. And then um, I would start to either transcribe those interviews. And then I might have another project that I'm I'm writing on at that minute. So I might do an hour of an hour of work on that, look at the word count as you mentioned, see where I'm up to. And uh, yeah, it's sort of that's I mean there's no sort of fixed structure. Sometimes I've got in-person interviews sometimes it's it's completely on zoom and uh yeah the the whole day is pretty much spent talking doing the interviews or writing (laughs) do you work monday to friday typically because you can make your own hours i would have thought yeah yeah i tried to stick to monday to friday before the pandemic i was i was a bit more sort of erratic with it but yeah no nowadays it's very much kind of five days a week you know and during the writing of this book as well that was you know, that was another thing as a freelancer, you know, you're, you're juggling doing your pre-existing work alongside, alongside writing the book and writing a book is quite a, 
uh, sort of it really concentrates the brain. So you need to sort of set aside several hours to get into your teeth into it and reread what you've written the day before and make changes and then move on with the next bit, you know, paying yeah. attention to the structure all the time and making sure it actually reads uh, in a kind of structured, cohesive sort of way rather than the reader being able to see that you've written this over a period of months. Yeah, that makes sense. Was there ever a period perhaps in your early career as a freelancer where you didn't have anything coming in? Because that's that's like my biggest fear about being freelance or self-employed with a normal stable office job, let's say. You know when your salary's coming in, you know what to expect, you can plan for like bills and ad hoc payments. Was mm. there ever a period where you thought, shit, I've got nothing to do today? No, not, not. I didn't know. I was really lucky, actually. I think as well, you know, I'd sort of set up a few gigs before I left, most of which I'm not doing anymore, but I did kind of make sure um, before I'd left my job at a newspaper before that I was, I had things ready to go. I suppose, yeah, I'd definitely say the first two years were the most tough. And there's always that fear that it's not going to work out and that maybe things are okay for now and they might not be in the future. Uh, that doesn't really ever leave you as a freelancer, I don't think. And it's quite good that it doesn't because you're always kind of looking ahead to the next thing. What do I need to do? What's my next six months looking like? But I mean, definitely, I've, I'm sure I had like afternoons or, or or mornings where I didn't feel as busy as I could be, but never times where it was sort of completely empty. Um, that would be really stressful. Yeah, I definitely would. Do you ever find yourself unable to switch off from the work brain? During the writing of this book, definitely at times, yeah, it's um, as it should be. It's it's quite consuming, and if you're sort of thinking about your characters, you're thinking about what you've written and what you're about to write the next day. For instance, you can you can sort of yeah, you you do find it more difficult to switch off. Or if you've you know had an interview with someone for the ghostwriting, if you've had an interview with someone that's been quite tricky, perhaps, or they've been discussing difficult things with you, then yeah, it could be be hard to but over time it's sort of it does become easier like everything it's it, at the end of the day it's a job like anyone else's you know what do you do in that spare time what what's your relaxation go to um podcast listening <laughs> <laughs> um, go for runs go to the pub with my mates <laughs> normal things go to the cinema big yeah. fan of cinema cool. often like to go to the cinema again on my own quite weird but um yeah i mean bike rides that sort of thing getting outdoors i think is the most important thing otherwise you're sort of very kind of stuck indoors being isolated and weird and thinking about murder all the time <laughs> i've never related to a comment so much in my life <laughs> definitely need to get outside more it's good for the brain good for the mental health yeah. but you mentioned your your new book there so this is called end of innocence and it focuses on the untold stories behind the victims of child killer robert black mm. August 18th, it came out. Now, I've actually covered Robert Black on the podcast. He was the, what do you call it, a special, I kind of do a special on a monotorious serial killer at the end of each season. He was the one I picked for season two. Awful, awful man. But this book, is it? you've kind of blended the truth with a little bit of literary free will, I suppose. So you've kind of, and it, you note it in there that some situations have been exaggerated for the sake of you know the story yeah. but for the most part the the facts are all there and this yeah. focuses on three so it's basically the 1978 disappearance of Jeanette Tate is is the overall arch I suppose of the story and then there's got the story of other three girls in there what was your motivation to start this story about such a notoriously evil 
serial killer is Robert Black? I think uh, growing up, um, I've always been interested in 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 murder and crime and and what sort of motivates people um, to 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 do it. I think in this case, I was surprised because Robert Black is is suspected of so many terrible crimes, and yet he's he's relatively unknown. You know, you compare him to some of the kind of the headline name serial killers in the UK, and he's actually relatively sort of unknown so that that interested me from from the start um but really this this book this is the first in a series and it's it's sort of meant to to look at these victims of crime and discuss why some of them get so much coverage you know what's the relationship between crime and journalists and the media more generally and and yeah I mean obviously the the case of Jeanette Tate is is quite a well-known case but the the others around it the ones that he's also suspected of um in this case April Fab and Christine Markham and Mary Boyle these are are relatively unknown in Ireland Mary Boyle's case is is, is pretty well known but not so much here and I think that that's what really fascinated me about about these ones because it's it, once the initial searches are called off and once the newspapers sort of lose interest because there's there's nothing to feed the story. Those cases sort of faded and no one's ever been convicted of, of those crimes. Robert Black, as, as you know, was was convicted of, of four murders, but mm-hmm. he's suspected of so many more. And that's what really drove me to, to look into him. Yeah, I mean, when I was researching his history and his personality and his traits, there's no way the four that he was convicted of are the only ones for sure it's interesting like you say though when there is a case such as the the three that you mentioned in the book where they essentially disappear without a trace mm. there's no witnesses there's nothing else found they list disappear into the ether basically yeah with the newspapers like they've got nothing for a story that i understand they didn't have really many pictures back then as well especially one of the the girl's family was was quite poor. There was a mother with six kids, I believe. I think it was Christine Markham. I believe yeah. that one that one was. So if you've not got a decent picture and you've not got a story and you've not got anything to update the public with, it's it's a shame that people such as those go under the radar just because they can't further a story in a newspaper. Yeah, no, definitely. And in addition to that, there's you know the, these kids. They fundamentally their cases did for a little while make newspapers. They did, but there are so many that we know of there's so many that we can suspect who just weren't reported in the first place or the newspapers never picked up on. So these are the named victims, even if their case didn't have a resolution. And we can just imagine the amount of sort of unnamed victims, um, either of Rob Black or of other people. I think in the last couple of years, we've become much more aware of why some victims get so much press and why others don't, you know, and what makes the kind of so-called perfect victim when it comes to selling newspapers or reporting on crimes more generally. So yeah, that's been that's been something that really really interested me, and I didn't want the book to be about Robert Black so much as about these victims. That's the the kind of point of it is that we we look at their lives and what we know about their lives, and then try to try to sort of piece together what that must have been like for parents, for you know the villages, the communities where these people lived, and like you say, so many of them they just they didn't come from particularly well off families. In the case of Christine. Markham and um, and it, and in Jeanette Tate's case as well. I mean, the picture that the newspapers used was three years out of date. So that already kind of leads you into questions about uh, you know how how is anyone supposed to 
to even keep a lookout if they don't they don't know what this person actually looks like. And that plays into kind of police procedure and systems that are so different nowadays to how they were then. Yeah, it is sad. I mean, very well written, by the way, I must say. I found myself, I'm quite a slow reader like yourself, but sometimes <laughs> when the writing style matches my how my brain functions i guess i was sort of flying through the chapters when i was reading it the other day so you mentioned that this is part of a series called truly unforgotten is this a series just by yourself or are there other authors involved i think the plan is um for the time being to have myself write the first two to three and then i suppose we'll we'll see how it goes that's what i know at the minute anyway we're still kind of sort of getting in the um comments from this one but yeah the plan would be to to write another one certainly (laughs) Any ideas on who you would look to cover? Yes, but I'm going to keep it on the down low for now. That's fine. You don't have to spill the beans. How hard is it to to do your research with cases that are so lesser known than the more notorious ones, but also from decades ago? Mm. Yeah, it's about um, it's about getting what you can. And um, I didn't want to be invasive. I didn't want to intrude with with families, for instance. You know, it's a getting okay, getting sense of where they lived what the families did. There was a lot of sort of pouring over old newspapers and microfiche and that sort of thing, trying to kind of build a picture of what the police were saying at the time. You know, another interesting thing about a lot of these early cases is that we just, you know, the majority of those police um, staff, you know, they're, they're no longer here. So um, getting a kind of picture of the, the context surrounding the crimes, I think is as interesting. And that research was fascinating into, you know, talking to like a, an ex-detective and, getting a sense of what it might have been like. You know, this detective that I spoke to was really useful in giving me a sense of how it would have been in the 70s and 80s and how murders, disappearances were um, were investigated. So that was really useful. Cool. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting read. I think what I typically I'm going to start doing is offering the books basically as a prize to a listener. And this one's certainly worth a read i love the cover as well i like the fact that robert black's on it but he's just sort of he's in the background throw away it's like it's it's not even in full color it's sort of transparent a little bit yeah. top yeah, corner like, yeah it's yeah. nice to look at as well um, yeah. and there is a bit of light there on the cover which i sort of like because you know i mean it's not really giving anything away to say that we're, we're sort of looking at the differences between then and now and would something like this be able to happen now and i suppose mm-hmm. a positive thing to take away from it is it would be really difficult to have a, a modern day Robert Black um, yeah. doing what he did in the way he did it. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a reason why there's so many serial killers active in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Mm. The mm. fact that there's not as many now really because of advances in CCTV, DNA, technology, social media, all that kind of stuff. So as much as people put it down, sometimes it can be useful for good things like that. Yeah. Fingers crossed anyway, touch wood. I was going to ask you finally, really, I always like to ask if people have advice for aspiring, in your case, journalists, people who want to be involved in publishing. The best way I can word it, if you could give yourself, your younger self, a piece of advice, say you're just starting your career, what would you advise yourself? It's hmm, a good question. I think I would advise myself to read as much as possible, as widely as possible, um, get get a sense of what you like, whether that's you know fiction, nonfiction, journalism. What kind of journalism specifically? What kind of publications you like, and and pitch. You know, try and set up meetings with people. Or try and, as I said before, you know, 
go along to events where they're sort of designed for young people looking to get into the industry, book yourself a ticket to a book fair, go along to, um, you know, like literary events. The the festivals often have like reduced tickets for, for younger people or for people looking to get into the industry and j- just try and sort of get yourself a little network going and talk to other people who who are in the same situation. But, you know, really, there's no harm in firing off emails <laughs> and, yeah. and giving a sense of what, what you can do and putting yourself up for work, even if you think you might not be good enough to do it. I mean, that's a really important thing is but these newspapers and magazines, they rely on the next generation. They need people coming through. So there's schemes, there's mentorship schemes, there's first time writer competitions and prizes. That would be something that, you know, I think I think increasingly like a lot of them are sort of reaching out specifically to like the under 25s, the under 30s. And these can be great ways of getting a foot in the door as well. And you can email literary agents. That's another thing. If you're looking to to be published and looking to, you know, or just get some advice, you can find a, a sort of small literary agency maybe and and send them an email. And they're very unlikely to kind of ignore it completely. I think most people are pretty willing nowadays to to give time to to that sort of thing. So yeah, that would be my advice. Cool. Good advice. Just do it. <laughs> like Mike said, just do it. <laughs> just do it. Yeah, just do it. Great career. It's really yeah. I mean, I couldn't recommend it enough. I love it. I feel cool. very lucky to work in it. So, yeah, just do it. Yeah, could tell you enjoy it. Have you got uh, a website or anything I can put in my description or your social medias and stuff? You might have to send me them after. Nothing, nothing. Nothing? Wow. <laughs> I've got a website. No, um, I did. I got rid of it. Um, no, no social media, nothing. So uh, just a link to the book, I guess, would be great. But, I mean... Yeah, that's uh, that's about all I got, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> no worries. That's okay. So as a reminder, Zoe's book, End of Innocence, the untold stories behind the victims of child killer Robert Black. It's available to purchase now. I will absolutely put a link in there if you're interested in buying it. And like I said, it's been a pleasure having you on, Zoe. I really appreciate your time. Any final thoughts before we close out? No, just thanks very much for having me. And uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. It's great. <laughs> Thank you. For everyone else listening, this likely will be a Monday that you hear this, so we'll have a normal episode coming up on Thursday. I'm recording this in September, so I don't know what the next episode's going to be. I can't see it to the future, and I'm very disorganised, but thank you for stopping by. And as we always say, cheerio! Cheerio!